the 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911. All right, Craig, thank you. It's uh, Tuesday, December 5th, 2023. In about an hour, we'll take a look at the true cost of electric vehicles. Uh, this hour has been far too long since we have visited with Professor Michael Latner, teaches political science at Cal Poly, arguably one of the leading authorities on all issues relating to voting in this nation. He's with us now. Professor, good to see you again. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me back. It's good to be here. We're going to have to start. Um, uh, Michael Woody was here last night. We're talking about Sacramento. I had a listener text in who challenged us to name anyone who has ever been denied the right to vote in this country. And Michael and I responded by saying, why don't you just go Google? (laughs) But now that you're here, what what do you say to somebody like that? Ever? Well, gosh, I guess I'd start with the founding of the Republic when only about 20% or so of the adult population had the right to vote. Property-owning males, white males. Uh, And then more recently and continually, we have a whole history of case law starting uh, really back in the 50s and the 60s, Baker v. Carr, Reynolds v. Sims, that began to address the question of uh, two questions, vote denial and vote dilution. And uh, there are literally hundreds of cases, and there are several cases currently pending in state and federal courts. Uh, where various election laws, intentional uh, or unintentional, but with the effect of discrimination, uh, keep people from voting, uh, millions of people. Happens on a regular basis. It is a, uh, the Department of Justice has its own civil rights division, and within the civil rights division is the voting rights division, and they're very busy people. So the uh, listener should take it upon himself to go out and educate himself a little bit. Education is a great thing. All right. In terms of voting, let's start with Liz Cheney. Uh, Liz Cheney is seriously considering third-party candidacy. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is already running. Joe Manchin is thinking of running. Cornell West is either running or thinking of running. What is going on here, Professor? I think uh, Brother West is running, for sure. Okay. I'm pretty convinced of that. All right. Uh, so you got at least four. Yeah, and the, the short answer is that we are, are in a period of realignment. Um, it, it, the coalitions within both the major political parties, the Democratic and Republican Party, have, have been realigning for decades. And we are, with the election of, of President Trump, we saw a, a, a new coalition really take control uh, of the base of the Republican Party. Uh, the Democratic Party is internally divided between its establishment wing and the the more progressive forces, so the, the Cornell West and the, the left uh, part of the Democratic Party. M- more importantly, I think, to, to your question, is that we, we have weak parties in the United States. And so right. compared to other democracies, um, it's very easy to, to finance one's own campaign and to decide what letter you want to put behind your name. And if you want to run for president, you can run for president. So our parties don't have the sort of internal structure to, to shape who the leadership is. It's largely based on, on primaries, and we've democratized the candidate selection process since the 1960s, which has had some, in my view, very unfortunate consequences. And so 
Um, all of those things together, in addition to the fact that we are in uh, what, what Steve Bannon, uh, Trump's uh, one of his primary advisors, I think correctly notes, is a populist moment. Um, the world is on fire. The, uh, there's a widespread res- uh, perception on the left and the right that uh, elites and inequality are, are uh, uh, the primary force that's driving people to, how can I say on public radio, F the establishment. Yeah. And when, you, when we're in a moment like this, you're going to see a lot of fragmentation and you're going to see a lot of challenges for power. All right. So given that, someone like Liz Cheney, if she runs, isn't she doing damage by throwing the race to one of the other two, assuming it's Biden yeah. versus Trump? Well, yeah. So I, I think the... The intent uh, of Cheney, uh, if you listen to her her words, and she's uh, now got a a new book on the subject, she is is actively trying to uh, keep Donald Trump from uh, gaining the presidency. And so her idea is that that the center right, the the establishment Republican Party that she comes from, that her family is is part of, uh, her intent is to give Republicans the option to vote with their conscience. Right. I mean, with their conscience, a lot of uh, Republicans are queasy about uh, Donald Trump. He's not a very popular candidate nationwide. He obviously has uh, a boatload of personal and professional problems. Um, And so she's trying her her goal is to take away enough of that GOP vote, presumably to to hand the the Electoral College and the, the presidency to Biden. The problem with that model is that historically it doesn't work. And what I mean by that is that if we look at where Liz Cheney could could gain votes, is she going to win the Electoral College votes of any state? No, No. she's not. And so the most damage that she could do to Trump would be in states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, where because they're such close states in terms of the the Democratic Republican vote share, she could peel off enough Republicans to give Biden those states. But it's a very risky strategy, and historically and comparatively, that is not how you stop autocrats from taking power. Um, Historically and comparatively, when we look even recently in countries like Poland and Spain uh, and and Argentina as an example of what not to do, um, to to fight off autocracy, you've got to have a pro-democracy coalition. And and what I mean by that is that the center-right, the center-left, and whether if the attack is coming from the far left, then that means that the far right has to build a coalition with the center. If the attack is coming from the right, then that means the far left has to swallow their, their pride and build a coalition with the center. You, you basically have to cordon off autocracy to keep it out of power in a democracy. And further fragmenting the vote is a very risky strategy, and it's prone to fail. We're talking about voting with uh, Professor Michael Latner. Political scientist extraordinaire from Cal Poly. Your phone call still to come. Did Donald Trump really call Joe Biden an enemy of democracy? Did I hear that correctly? So it, it's actually a really interesting point. It happened a few days ago, I think, at a rally. And what it suggests to me is that Biden's strategy of making the race a choice between democracy or Donald Trump is actually working. And there's some evidence from the midterm elections that the issues that people cared about most were abortion and democracy, and that it's, a, it's an effective tactic for the Biden administration to be using. Otherwise, Trump wouldn't be responding to it. And so, uh, it, you know, this is an attempt at what we call political jujitsu, where you try to turn the opponent's strength into a weakness. I'm not sure uh, how well it's going to work, but it, it is important to note that he's taken that tack. You labeled uh, Donald Trump as an autocrat. What do you point to? 
Uh, I point to the insurrection of January 6th. I point to all of his criminal indictments and the co-conspirators that he's been indicted with in their attempt to overturn the 2020 election. Should he lose again in no- uh, next November, would you expect a repeat of the voting fraud accusations and stolen elections that we saw in 2020? If it's a co- close election, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't see a far more concerted attempt. I mean, we already know that groups of his supporters, Cleta Mitchell and some of the attorneys, some of whom have actually already pled guilty to election fraud, are actively working in those battleground states that I just mentioned, in Wisconsin and in Georgia, in Arizona, in Pennsylvania. Uh, they are working to to try to clog up the vote. They are going to be challenging ballots and they're going to try to gum up the process in an attempt to allow state legislatures to call for a failed election. And some of those state legislatures have already passed laws giving themselves more political power, taking power away from administrators um, to make those sort of political calls. We're in a very dangerous situation and I don't, I don't see any evidence to suggest that uh, we would avoid a catastrophe or systemic violence if it's an election, a, a close election again. We're spending the hour with Professor Latner from uh, Cal Poly talking about voting. When we come back, we'll put the focus on what's happening locally with uh, voting by district and that whole debate. And then we'll see where you want to go with your calls. Stay with us. This is live local hometown radio. Our guest for the hour is political science professor at Cal Poly, Dr. Michael Latner. We're talking about voting on the uh, text line, professor. Liz Cheney received the John F. Kennedy Profile and Courage Award bestowed on those who exemplify courage in protecting and defending democracy. I couldn't respect her more for her efforts to protect our nation. Oh, don't get me wrong. I don't think that there would be a better Republican to make this run. Uh, Liz Cheney has, has, has proven herself and, and sacrificed her job and her career. Uh, for the Constitution, and I think she should be commended for that. My, my, the, the problem is that this particular tactic in terms of staving off autocracy um, has traditionally not worked. And, and I would also, I would be remiss, my wife just texted me and reminded me that if you had a vagina, you couldn't vote in this country until 1920. So uh, I, I have to mention that as well. On the I'm glad you did. Uh, text number two, have you ever worked on a political campaign? You've, where you've worked on many, haven't you? I, uh, I have worked on many. I haven't worked uh, in any in a few years. The first campaign I ever worked on was John McCain's uh, 2000 presidential run, uh, which didn't work out as, as planned. Uh, but yeah, I've worked on a number of campaigns for uh, both Republicans and Democrats. This uh, third and final text seems to get to what we're talking about. Every vote not for Biden is a vote for Trump and an eventual dictatorship. Yeah, so I think that that's actually a pretty accurate way to to project into the future, right? I mean, Liz Cheney's not going to be the next president of the United States. The next president, as far as we can tell, unless for whatever reason Donald Trump uh, drops out or is is uh, something else happens in the Republican primary, which it's not likely to happen, the next president of the United States is either going to be Joe Biden or Donald Trump. And, and that's the reality, and people have got to embrace that reality. And it, it's one of the reasons, I think, why you see Biden's polling numbers suffering quite a bit because we're not really faced with that choice right now, right? We're not in the actual campaign. Yeah, why season. is the number so low? Uh, you know, given, given what people agree are some legitimate accomplishments. Uh, f- for sure. And uh, there are a number of, of theories about this. Um, I would say, uh, one, the, the worst theory is that the polls are wrong. Um, that's simply not the case. Um, Biden is in bad shape. He is in worse shape relative to uh, Obama and George W. Bush in terms of where he, he looking at you know, two-term presidents. And, and so he's got work to do. And, and, and to get back to my, uh, 
thesis about the the FD establishment voters. He's losing young voters. He's losing voters of color, and and those are the the folks that are are not traditional voters. They're not. Um, highly uh, aligned with either political party, and he's going to have to work to put that coalition back together. Um, maybe he could put Liz Cheney as a running mate. Uh, <laughs> so it's actually not unheard of for a yeah. president to dump a VP and bring another on board. It's happened a number of times. Uh, I think it's highly unlikely in this environment, but uh, on its on its own, a, a Cheney-Biden ticket would be a very popular ticket. Uh, listener wants to know if you believe that low-information voters are helping or hurting our country and its future. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I, I think it depends on what you mean by low-information voter. Uh, most voters are low-information in some way or another. Uh, there, There's a great uh, theory of public opinion that, that came out of UCLA that, that argues that, that m- most most voters vote with their values. It's, uh, voting is, is partially a rational act about how you're going to be better off. But, uh, but in this information environment, it, it, low information voters who don't vote all the time, they only vote periodically, they are certainly more shifty than regular voters. But, I mean, honestly, in this environment where we, we have two political parties that are deeply unpopular, uh, there's, a, there's a reason why we're in a populist movement, and it's because both of our parties, neither of our parties are living up to their expectations. Let's take a call. Here's Peggy on KVEC. Hi, Peggy. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, yes, um, as Dave knows, I'm very active with the Green Party of California and of the National Green Party. And please, when you say uh, Cornell West and RFK well, as options for people, include Jill Stein, who Certainly. is running as the Green presidential candidate. I mean, no, she's not nom. I mean, she has to you know, go through the nomination process, but she's the presumptive nominee for the Green Party. Yeah, and, and uh, with all due respect, I mean that that's part of the the problem is that we have a fragmented left, and if we we're going to have you know three or four choices on the left, that's clearly going to pull voters away from the Democratic base. And I, and I don't mean to suggest that Democratic the Democratic Party owns any voters or is, is due to any yeah. voters. They're not. But in this system, when either Joe Biden or Donald Trump is going to be the next president, it could mm-hmm. be a disaster. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm just thrilled. I mean, Jill was kind of compelled to run because Cornell was our candidate. But then, you know, he, he's his own person. And I understand why he became an independent. He's going to have a hard time, though, in California, because probably he has to raise $2 million to get on the ballot as an independent. So yeah, but... Jill's already on the ballot, which is fantastic. And, um, and the, so... the Green Party has a lot of problems in California and, and nationwide. I mean, they, they've... Uh... They, they have not followed the path of Green Parties in other countries, and, and I think it's worked to their detriment. Well, well, because, you know, we don't have a proportional representation or ranked choice voting in this country like most democracies actually have. So, yeah, but we're really lucky with the Greens. We have a lot of ballot access, and we're going to continue to get more ballot access through hopefully like 45 states anyway um, when it comes to November. So it's very exciting for us who, who want to vote our values. And I, I understand the arguments about voting Dem or Republican, but, you know, most of us want to, as you said, thank you for pointing out that people are just disillusioned completely with the Democratic-Republican choices. So, All right, Peggy, thank you. You were going to say? I, I'm going to reserve my comments. I just—it would be nice if the Green Party would run better candidates. Well, yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, that, Jill yeah. Stein is, is a bit of a wreck. Yeah, and well, let's leave it at that. Yeah. Before the news break, we'll start welcoming your phone calls. Come closer to home. 
Paso Robles, Atascadero, Arroyo Grande all have district voting. So, uh, and many of them were forced to adopt district right. voting. Right. I'm not saying yes. that they're forced to. Convince me why San Luis Obispo should not have district voting. Well, I guess I'd start with asking you how much better is government in those cities that were forced to adopt district voting? Have things improved anything? Is there any evidence that they're governed better? Um, I'd have to look at the diversity and the makeup because my argument is is that in San Luis, I want something. Uh, and I like all five city council members. It's not personal. But as a block, there are five female uber progressives. <sighs> The, so you, you just don't want to see all all women on us? No, it's not, no, it's not all women. <laughs> don't get me in trouble. But it's more that they're uber progressive. Sure. sure. All right. So you'd like to see more and, ideological and why, diversity. And why are they uber progressive? Why is that? Because they all come from the Democratic Party. You can't get on the city council if you're not in good with the local Democratic Party. And why is that? Because uh, they control access to Cal Poly. And the only way for me, Michael, to get diversity on city council is to stop the influence of Cal Poly on local elections. Well, that's personally very hurtful, Dave, that you would say that about my wonderful employer. But yeah. beside that, I would. I, so let me start with a point of agreement that San Luis Obispo and all California at large cities have horrible electoral systems. Um, at block, block plurality voting, which is what we have here in San Luis Obispo, that is, you got a, a two-seat election basically every two years for four-year staggered terms, it is among the worst electoral systems. And the reason that it's a bad electoral system is precisely the point that you raised because it allows the largest plurality of voters, not necessarily a majority, but whichever is the largest group of voters, if they vote as a block, they can control every seat. Yep. And that's a problem. And it's actually the, the incentive behind the California Voting Rights Act is a good one in the sense that single-seat districts have been used by the federal government and by state governments. They were designed to, to break up uh, vote dilution and, and to provide the right to vote for minorities, primarily racial minorities protected under the Federal Voting Rights Act. The problem with single-seat elections is that unless you have a minority that is geographically concentrated enough, they do not uh, uh, facilitate the election of that minority. And, and furthermore, to your ideological point, I don't think that we have conservatives that are concentrated in an, any district that would allow them to actually win the district. And that's the thing about single-seat districts is they're all based on geography. But they could run and get the votes of their neighbors and not have to go to Cal Poly and campaign on campus. Uh, there's not, where no Republican's going to go. Th but there's not a lot of campaigning that happens on campus anyways. And Cal Poly actually is a pretty small percentage of voters in, in San Luis Obispo. In fact, most of Cal Poly is not actually within the municipality. So why does Heidi Harmon spend so, many, so much time at Cal Poly when she's campaigning? Because she has campaigned and built a strong coalition with the youth vote. And yep. there are young voters at, at Cal Poly yep. uh, because they may go to school there even if they don't live there. But my, my bigger point is that what you want is an electoral system that encourages diversity. And there are many ways to do that without going to districts. Uh, proportional representation was already mentioned. We can talk about that when we come back. Absolutely. Dr. Michael Latner is here for the hour. We've got news, traffic, weather. Then we welcome your phone calls, read more of your text messages as we talk about voting. This is Hometown Radio.
Tomorrow's special broadcast, we devote the entire show in support of our friends at Lumina Alliance, putting the spotlight on survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence. We're going to try to raise some money. We're going to try to support our friends and raise awareness as well. So please, please, please join us tomorrow. We are back with Dr. Michael Latner. Cal Poly political science professor. We're talking about voting a wide range of subjects. Join us, 805-543-8830 or 800-549-5832. So before the break, Professor, you were talking about alternatives to uh, voting by district to solve the inequity issues. Yeah, so there was a recent decision by the California Supreme Court uh, regarding the city of Santa Monica. They got sued under this uh, California Voting Rights Act uh, initiative to adopt uh, a districts that would presumably provide greater Latino support uh, and representation. The, the, again, the problem is unless you've got a, a group that is concentrated and you have racially polarized voting that regularly defeats the minority candidate, um, districts won't get you there. And there are a number of alternatives, which I'm, I'm happy to say the court recognized in this decision. Give me they, one. Uh, so the simplest is just limited voting, right? So you keep the same system you have, but instead of every voter getting two votes or three votes, if it's a two or three seat contest, everyone gets one vote. Hmm. And what that prevents is the plurality from sweeping every seat. Right. The problem is that you have some coordination problems. You can have too many candidates run and they cancel the, the slate out. Um, there is another uh, alternative called cumulative voting, where you actually uh, you get the same number of votes for seats, but uh, voters are allowed to um, bullet or, or um, plump their votes. So you could give one candidate two votes or three votes. And that's an effective way to enhance minority representation. It would ensure that at least one or two conservatives was on the slow city council. Let's take a call. Here's Rick in Templeton. Hey, Rick. Hi, Dave. Hi, Professor. Hi. Uh, Cal Poly's got dorm rooms. There's got to be thousands of dorm rooms at Cal Poly just right there. Plus, all the students like to live as close to the campus as they can. So, therefore... They're very concentrated. Grand Avenue and all in that neighborhood. They're scattered in other parts of the town, too, but they're very concentrated in Cal Poly. Mm -hmm. And I really believe that district voting put all of them in their concentrated area. And they would represent, and and then they wouldn't rule the whole rest of the town. They yeah. need district voting in in Cal Poly. And by the way, do you know how many dorm rooms there are in Cal Poly do for the students living there? Do you know, Rick? No, I'm, not, I'm asking yeah. the press, but okay. professor. I'm just wondering if you know. Uh, no, I don't, but I do know that almost all the dorms are actually not in the municipality boundaries, and so they're actually not eligible to vote in city elections. So the data doesn't show. Uh, College students tipping the hat in local elections? I'll defer to you. No, well, so there's two reasons they don't. Um, the number one reason is that, is that uh, college students don't vote. So uh, a large number of students that go to Cal Poly are actually registered in their home counties. And young people are the lowest turnout group of any demographic group in the country. So that's one thing. The other thing is that Cal Poly, the, the campus itself, actually, most of it is not within the municipality of San Luis Obispo. And so unless you live in the city of San Luis Obispo, you're not eligible to vote in municipal elections. But they vote in supervisor races. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Rick, uh, you telling me Cal Poly isn't in San Luis Obispo? Yeah, the campus is... It's got to be in San Luis Obispo. Calm city. down, Rick. Calm down. No, mo- <laughs> most, most of the... Uh, I mean, it's, it's state-owned property, right? So the state... 
likes to. I mean, most of it's in in the county, but it's not in the city of San Luis Obispo. And Rick, I know, but the kids that live there, they vote with, for the city. They don't vote for Morro Bay people. They vote for the people in San Luis. No, they actually don't vote in any city elections because they're not in an incorporated area. So, like, well, why, the, well, why does Heidi Harmon, like Dave said, always go there? And you said that oh, she wanted, she really likes the young people. They have all she their, wasn't going there for a good health. They vote. They have all their I, rallies there. Uh, sure, they do, and that uh, because you can obviously, if you go to places where uh, your voting base is concentrated, you're going to. That, I mean, that's just a, a, the incentive to to do that is to go where the voters are. But um, most of the the voters, the students that vote in San Luis Obispo city elections, probably, well, all of them by definition live in the city, so they yeah. don't actually live on campus. So we could put them all in one district. <laughs> I, yeah, you and I are going to agree on uh, this. Yeah, I don't, I mean, the, Rick, by the way, the, the answer is 7,700. 7,700 Cal Poly students live on campus. Appreciate the call. 805-543-8830. 800-549-5832. John's in San Luis on KVEC. Hi, John. Hi. Hey, Dave. Hey, John. Hi, Michael. Hey, John. Thanks. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Well, so I had a... I had a question about the the alternatives that, that Mike has outlined. I know uh, you mentioned uh, earlier to me, I think that instant runoff voting has some problems, but there are other systems that might achieve a better result than than moving from the at-large elections to um, district elections in San Francisco in particular. I'd like to know if, um, if you think there are, are some other options that might be uh, explored by the council because they're meeting on this as as uh, I don't know if you pointed out already, Dave, but the council has a closed session tomorrow, and they're going to be considering the issue of um, uh, how to respond to a threat of litigation from the same outfit that's been suing so many cities. John Ashbaugh, your former city, San Luis City Council member, where do you stand on the district voting issue? I believe that there's a better option if we need to explore options. I don't think in the first place that San Luis Obispo is in violation of the Voting Rights Act, as they allege, uh, because, as Michael has pointed out, there's no geographic concentration of any disadvantaged uh, group of voters, with the possible exception of students. And I, I, I do echo what Michael has just said. Students, as a rule, are uh, very difficult people to get out to vote. You know, I listened to... Uh, Keith Gurney a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I, I, I saw him shedding his crocodile tears about how hard it is for people like him to get elected because he's a, Dem- he's a Republican. He, he used to be a Democrat, and he got elected with the student vote, you know. But, uh, but I also think that if Republicans are considered a disadvantaged minority here, then um, we're in real trouble. The way for more Republicans to get elected to our city council or to our board of supervisors is not just to run better candidates, but, but, you know, I think they should leave that party because that party has fundamentally, uh, you know, abandoned all principles of our Constitution and the peaceful transfer of power. Before Michael, uh, those, before Michael responds, when you were running for city council either time, did you ever campaign on the Cal Poly campus? Well, I, I attended events at Cal Poly when I was invited, but I also realized that students... Uh, first of all, uh, most of the students, and there are about 7,000 students, I believe, maybe a few more now, um, that live on campus. 7,700. Only, yeah, about 7,000. Only a, a small handful of those students actually live on campus. 
um, and and uh, the, I, I, you know it's it, it has been my my position in the past that yes the city should annex Cal Poly not because we're interested in having the students vote in the city although I don't think it would would uh, matter all that much quite frankly the faculty is much more liberal and democratic than the students honestly. Uh, but, uh, but but I think it's important for us to capture the sales tax revenue up there. You know that. Uh, well, here, here, hang on. You're pulling us way off topic, John. Uh, Michael, respond to what he was saying earlier. Point. Yeah. So, with regard to alternatives, uh, I I would agree with John. I I don't think that there's a strong case for a California Voting Rights Act case here, namely because the Latino population in the city is is so dispersed that there there is no way to create what's called a minority influence district. The, the highest percentage of Latinos you could get are maybe 25, 30%, and that's typically not enough for a, a to to ensure that those voters can elect their candidate of choice, I would suggest if they're uh, if they're looking to change electoral systems, the the best way to increase diversity is to increase the size of the council, to increase the number of seats that are elected. That lowers what's called the threshold of exclusion. That is, you need a smaller percentage of votes to actually elect a candidate. And so, if you reduce that threshold, you can ensure that you're going to get a more diverse representation of the city. What else, John? I like that idea. I, I also think if we're going to have any district elections at all, we should have only two districts, each of which elect more than one candidate. I, I thought maybe two candidates, but maybe a good idea would be to have, in fact, uh, three or even four candidates have a seven or, or a nine-member uh, uh, council and have the, the mayor continue to be elected at large. But every two years, you would have the opportunity to elect uh, a member from your part of the, 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 the city. And the best way to divide the city is, of course, right down Highway 101. So you yeah. have West San Luis Obispo and East San Luis Obispo. What do you think about all this, Michael? Uh, so I'm generally just not a supporter of district elections. John raises a really good point, though, that the the key is to having multi-seat elections. You don't want to move to single-seat elections. And, and the main reason is that you there is no district where there's only one view and if you can only represent one interest or one party you are denying people their representation in a single seat district and i don't know why dave you would want to impose on the city of san luis obispo the single seat system that we have for congress I'm what just, has that begotten us? i'm just trying to break the the progressive <laughs> grip on the city council and i'm left of center okay the way to do it is to increase the size of the assembly and move to a more proportional system all right john thank you we go to eric in san luis Hi, Eric. Hi there, Dave. Hi, Eric. I had a question. I had a question for the professor. Have, have they ever considered increasing the number of people that serve on the council? Oh, that's exactly what we were were just talking about, and I think it is. It's the single best way. So there are two fundamental features of electoral systems. Uh, we call it the seat product. This is actually probably the closest thing that we have to a physical law in political science is the law of assembly size and, and seat product. And the more seats you have to fill, the lower percentage of a vote that any candidate needs or any party needs to get a seat. That's how you ensure diversity. That's how you would actually uh, break up uh, the, any kind of dominant force on a city council. And this all goes back to James Madison, right? I mean, you read Federalist 10, you increase the variety of interest and you make it more difficult for any majority to dominate or control any assembly. I think that's absolutely right. Eric? I think it's a good idea. I'd like to see it bump up to nine, nine people rather than five. Nine. Yeah, no, nine would be a good number. I, I would even go to 15. 15? 15. 15. For a city council? What do you think you are, L.A.? 
uh, LA has the smallest city council per capita in the world. 15 seats for 4 million people, something like that. It's ridiculous. Mm. One of the reasons, and, I, and while we're on the topic, I should add that one of the reasons why we have such small city councils in the United States compared to the rest of the world is because of structural racism. The progressive movement of the early 1900s intentionally created small city councils to keep out minority votes. There you have it. All right, Eric, thank you. We've got Gary and Pismo. Hey, Gary. Hey, hi, Dave. I wanted to ask the professor, does he think that this trend towards Republican authoritarianism and manipulating the system, manipulating voting and so forth, started with Nixon and the whole gang doing dirty tricks, or did it start before that? Oh, that's a great question. I I would say, I mean, if it's very tough to you know put a flag in the timeline of, of where this happens. I, I would say that Nixon's probably not the prime suspect, given that he he lost an election to John Kennedy, which was fraught with election fraud, and he made the decision that it would be too tumultuous for the country to actually fight that, and and so I. I I don't think he was. Uh, I think he was a constitutionalist at heart, as much of, as much as he was certainly a criminal at heart as well. I would actually put the beginning of this movement with Newt Gingrich in the in the early 1990s. You had the GOP win back the House of Representatives for the first time in 40 years, and from that moment on. Gingrich, in particular, disregarded the rules of, of uh, precedent and the, the ranking candidates on committees and played a very different game of, of politics that, that began this sort of erosion of norms and respect for institutions and, and crucially, respect for the opposition. And that's, that is really our, our problem today is that we have created a zero-sum game where Either both sides are being told that whatever happens, you can't let the other side take power because it'll be the end of the country. And that is a very dangerous place for democracies to be. Gary? Any way out of this? (laughs) <laughs> that you can see? Yeah, I mean, there are paths forward. There, there are, there are um, paths that are political paths. So as I was saying earlier, when we look around the world, there are countries that have successfully fought off authoritarianism, but it requires a pro-democracy coalition. It requires uh, some strange bedfellows to, to coalesce with each other. As, as Dave was saying, it, it requires Cheney and Biden to stand together and to say we're not going to let this happen. It requires that sort of a coalition to to fight off authoritarianism. The other alternative, there are institutional reforms like we've been talking about, moving, changing Congress to a more proportional electoral system, allowing fusion voting, for example, in, uh, in the Senate and in presidential campaigns, I think would be a great way to help uh, attenuate this, this radicalism. Uh, or the the alternative is that you just get more disruption and, and things get really bad before they get better. Gary, thanks for the call. 805-543-8830 or 800-549-5832. As we talk about everything relating to voting with Cal Poly political science professor Dr. Michael Latner. Following up, Gary, on the text line, if Donald Trump were to die tomorrow, would this trend towards fascism go away or die down? Uh, it's a great question. I mean, I mean, there's there's no no doubt that the uh, it takes individuals with a particular character to to push the public's buttons in the way that that Trump and other autocrats do. I mean, they basically disregard the rules of 
uh, of respect for institutions and respect for the law. I, I would say that looking at, at the new Speaker of the House, for example, that this faction of the Republican Party has, has taken over, and they are they're running the institutions where they can win now. Uh, Nikki Haley's suggestion the other night uh, to put on put term limits for for administrators and bureaucrats. I mean, th- that's just an awful idea. We we need professionals in government. So I think that that this is this is seeped into the GOP. Um, but there's still you know, uh, I mean, I I guess it, I'm an optimist at heart, and I, I think that if if Trump's not in the picture, if there's not someone continually pushing these buttons and inflaming this kind of animosity, that we can get back to normal. All right, 805-543-8830-800-549-5832. Scott's in San Luis. Hey, Scott. Hello, Dave. Hey, Hello, Scott. Dr. Uh, Michael Latner. Hi. Hi. Hey, the, the reason um, I want district voting is I can't pick a council member to discuss issues in my district if I can call Laguna a district. Because when I contact, because I have to contact all of them, mm-hmm. discuss something that might be in this area, and, I, and only one responds. And that one person that responds sends the same email uh, to everybody else. So I really don't have representation. So, I mean, the question is, um, is, represent, is, is, is um, the question is, is representation more important uh, of an air uh, of a district, or is it the agenda of the public official more important? For example, these five council members all have the same agenda. It's a is that really more important than yeah. representing something of a district that may be important what they want? Let them answer. Yeah, so I, I think it's a great question. And one of the, the supposed advantages of, re- of district representation is that you get more constituent service, right? Yeah. Because everyone's got their own representative and re- they're responsible for a certain geography. The, the downside of that is that empirically it doesn't pan out. And wh- what I mean by that is when we compare district systems to proportional systems, for example, your vote matters more under a proportional system. And, and so the difference would be that if you voted for a candidate in a district system, they may or may not win. So you may have a representative or you may not have a representative or no one that you voted for. At least in a proportional system, you if you beat that threshold of exclusion, you've got your representative who cares about your issues. And maybe those issues are decided by geography, right? If geography is a really important thing, then geography is what gets represented on the council. Or if it's race, then it's race. Or if it's uh, ideology, then it's ideology. The point is that you can you can be assured of having a representative that you support if the the assembly is large enough. And and if your vote counts, and what really matters is whether your vote counts or not, and it may or may not in a district election. What else, Scott? Well, can you imagine Congress um, didn't have you know districts? Oh it would boy, feel like can I? San Luis Obispo. Yeah, you know. And every time I contact, well, if I try to contact maybe a congressman in Pennsylvania, right? They're going to refer me to contact my constituents. If I so, I have to contact my constituents to contact them in order to get some fair question or sure, right? Yeah, and so what Congress would look like under proportional representation is you might have like a a five seat district on the Central Coast, right? So, uh, I mean, right now, if you're a Republican on the Central Coast, you don't really have a constituent or a representative, anyways. At least if you had a five seat district, you'd either have three Republicans and two Democrats, or three Democrats and two Republicans, but you definitely would have a representative that represented your area and and your interests. We go, uh, Scott, thank you. We go to Mike in Los Osos. Hey, Mike. 
guys. Hi, Mike. Uh, Hi. I, I heard, you know, I heard the buzzwords of uh, authoritarianism and uh, threat to democracy. And um, I'd just like to ask the doctor, um, you know, like, I guess, I, you know, though I'm, I'm, I don't guess. I know you're, you're referencing Trump. Um, yes. And, and so what, what I don't get is, first of all, he was already president for four years, and people were able to riot up and down the country for, you know, the summer of love um, and, and so on. Um, the, the, the media colluded against him. The federal government, um, the FBI, DHS, CIA, we, we have the evidence. They, used, they went with uh, big tech to censor Americans. They forced and mandated uh, the COVID shots that did not stop transmission, which they said it would. They so what's the question? Everything else. Mike, so what's my the question? Is, really, just Dave, please let me finish. Well, I don't my have that kind of time. In order to be an authoritarianism, or an in order to have that, don't you need the presidency and the government in bed with corporate America and big tech exactly the way that the left is? I think to be an authoritarian, you have to try to dismantle the democratic process. And I think that there's ample evidence that the president and his coalition attempted to subvert the 2020 election. He already said he's going to do it again if he's reelected. I, I don't see any reason why he wouldn't. And, and I would I would just suggest that the, the listener um, go to the, the part of the, the tape of the January 6th commission that, that actually interviewed the, the heads of the Department of Justice, the FBI, all these groups that you think are the deep state, and, and watch the piece of tape where Trump attempted to replace the attorney, the sitting deputy attorney general, and, and listen to what that testimony was. Listen to that testimony, and then you tell me whether you think he's an authoritarian or not. I got to get this break, and Mike, thanks for the call. We'll come back with Dr. Michael Latner on Hometown Radio, where we close with Sean having a comment. Hey, Sean. Hi. Hi. Hey, uh, to get the conversation rolled back to the very beginning there about voter suppression. As somebody that's experienced voter suppression, I would want to know from the professor what what makes requiring an ID to vote so controversial. And do it in 30 seconds, please. Uh, when you use that ID to intentionally discriminate against uh, people like they did in North Carolina, where the judge deciding the case said that they targeted African-Americans with surgical precision, that's a problem. If you provide everyone an ID and you don't discriminate, it's a great idea. So it's just, if everybody gets the same ID, you're okay with it? If you provide everyone with an ID so that they can vote, I, I definitely think that we could uh, build on that. We'll have to leave it at that. Sean, thank you. We are out of time. Nice job by Professor Latner. 20 seconds for a final thought, sir. Well, Dave, just thanks for having me on, and I want to remind everyone to vote, get out there, and fight for your democracy as if it depends on it, because it does. Because it does. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Off we go. We've got news and traffic and weather up next. What's the true cost of owning an electric vehicle? You might be surprised. Let's talk. The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 0111911.